Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, an alchemical superweapon that can save the world or destroy it. The answer to humanity's existential questions and a new anthology featuring AI super tanks. Plus, epic adventure, the horrors and glory of war, and the dawning of authentic love. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor David F. Shirod, sitting in for your regular host, Tony Daniel. Today, we bring you the third and final installment in my interview with David Weber and Richard Fox about their new novel, Governor. Plus, I had a chance to comb through the Bain Free Radio Hour archives. They're housed in a secret room in Tony Daniels' basement, accessible through a hidden panel behind his collection. Well, I said too much already. Uh, anyway, I dug up a real gem for the audiobook portion of the show, so stay tuned for that. But first, the news. The August hardcover and trade paperbacks are in. First up, the latest installment in Larry Correa's best-selling Monster Hunter International series, Monster Hunter Bloodlines. The chaos god Asag has been seemingly quiet since the destruction of the City of Monsters, but everybody at Monster Hunter International knows that he, or it, or whatever, is still out there, spoiling for another chance to unravel reality. And when Owen Pitt and the MHI team discover that one of Isaac Newton's ward stones is being auctioned off, they attempt to lay hands on the magical superweapon. But before MHI can get it, the stone is nicked by a mysterious thief with ties to both MHI and the Vatican's secret guard. Now Owen and MHI find themselves in a race against time and monsters to acquire Newton's stone and destroy Asag once and for all. Next up is Saving Proxima by Travis Taylor and Les Johnson. 2072, at the Lunar Farside Radio Observatory, an old-school radio broadcast is detected in an unknown language coming from an impossible source. Proxima Centauri. While the nations of Earth debate making first contact, they learn that the Proximans are facing an extinction-level disaster, forcing a decision. Will Earth send a ship on a multi-year trip to render aid? Interstellar travel is not easy, and by traveling at the speeds required to arrive before disaster strikes at Proxima, humans will learn firsthand the time-dilating effects of Einstein's special relativity and be forced to ponder ultimate questions. Are we alone in the universe? And what does it mean to be human? The answers are far from academic, for they may determine the fate of not one, but two civilizations. And in trade paperback, there's the all new anthology World Breakers, edited by Tony Daniel and Christopher Rocchio. Brute force, intransigent defiance, adamantine will. These are the harm marks of the AI tank. Formed from cold steel and superpowered computing brains, these gigantic tanks with the firepower of an entire army have been the decisive factors in interplanetary battle. 
but are humans worthy of the extraordinary instruments of war that they have created? Are the world breakers the greatest protector of human liberty or its worst threat? For while these world breakers very definitely have minds of their own, the question remains. Within their iron and superluminal quantum breasts, does there lie a faithful heart? Stories of world breakers and world makers in the great tradition of Keith Lommer's bolos from David Weber, Larry Correa, Wynn Spencer, and more. I want to mention that we plan to feature interviews with the authors and editors of all three books here on the podcast, so be sure to tune in for those. And that's it for the news. And now the final installment of my conversation with David Weber and Richard Fox. Uh, well, you know, there's one other character we haven't talked about much. And then um, I think that was, well, we we could talk about the Rish more, but I want to talk about, uh, is it Callum or Callum? I don't know. Um, I, pronounce, I pronounce it Callum. Callum. Okay. So Callum Murphy, who is uh, Terrence Murphy's son or his younger son, he's got two sons. Yeah. Um, and uh, the older one seems to take more after his mother's side of things. And and Callum sort of thinks maybe he will too, but then there is a different path uh, laid out for him. So uh, if we could just talk about him a little bit, I think, because he was, he's really sort of co-lead character in a way, although yeah. Murphy obviously is more integral to this story. But. Yeah, well, Callum, he, he's, uh, he's kind, of a, kind of a spoiled brat. He, he hasn't had the hard part of life because his mother and his grandfather are obscenely rich, his father is famous. So the way he looks at life is that he just can just tread water and probably get ahead. So, you know, you have that kind of character. And then you need the author. <laughs> the author like, well, we're going to have fun with this kid. And uh, so with Callum, you know, he, you know, he's, he's that naive kind of person. And with, he also is nice because he can, because he doesn't quite know everything. So he can take the place of the reader to go, I don't understand why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. Well, junior officer, let me explain it to you. So that's one of the it's one of our author tricks to hide exposition sometimes. Right. Oh, yeah. Is when oh, you yeah. have a character standing in for the audience, ask a question that the audience has, and the audience is like, "Oh, I'm so glad." Meanwhile, the authors were like, "We're just we're being a little bit more clever and giving you information." So it, that, with go ahead, David. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. So with Callum, he's um, you, we all know Terrence is going to be the emperor, and emperors tend to be dynastic, so. Now, all of a sudden, hey, Callum, the readers are going to be thinking, of, well, Terrence is going to be the emperor. Who's going to be the next emperor after him? So, you know, when, with Callum, the way he starts off as... as it's, a, like, it's like, a please, God, little not him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Callum starts off as a spoiled little princeling. How is he going to, you know, you know, um, you know uh, rise up in his father's shadow? So he's got a lot of, a lot of character growth. He's getting quite the arc by the end of the series. In, in in my original concept, okay, one of Murphy's kids gets sent out to him after he's already on the frontier. In this, in the iteration that we finally put up, Callum goes out with him from the beginning, okay? Um, one of the things, though, that is interesting, and Richard, I can't remember which one of us did this, but when he reports aboard the Kalima and he's talking to the to the engineering guy 
about you know the software glitch that's because you know he and he knows how it works because his father's shipyard you know built the tech et cetera et cetera et cetera. One of the things that you find out is that even though he is this son of this you know filthy rich et cetera et cetera et cetera, his grandfather, who is in many respects not a sympathetic character but does have some aspects of him that are are sympathetic, but he insisted that his grandsons go into the shipyard and start at the bottom and spend a couple of years learning how ships are built and how it goes together and everything else so that they have this practical experience of what to his father grandfather is important which is building ships and making the family business work and so forth so he's got that okay what he hasn't got yet when we when we meet him the murphy side of his heritage is not filled in okay um one of the things and richard i'm pretty sure this was you uh the battle of uh whatever it is the the bryn gap okay callum doesn't realize that the simulation that he's gaming is the one in which his paternal grandfather died. That's how uninformed he is about what's going on out here. Okay, he doesn't understand that the that the battle simulation that his father is using to to illustrate a point to him is the one in which his own grandfather died. And that, I think, is really the point at which Callum's understanding of the universe begins to change, um, at which he begins to realize that this confident uh, kind of, my world is protected, you know, nothing real bad is going to happen, et cetera, that he's about to maybe step outside that. And in some respects, his father commits him to this without Callum getting a vote, okay? At the end of the day, though, Callum would not have been anywhere else, okay? I mean, at the end of this book, okay, I mean, he's still going <laughs> to whine and carry on some, you know, and he's still going to say, I'll just stay here and have some of these pain meds. They're, they're really nice. <laughs> you know, that's after he gets blown up, you know? <laughs> I, I like that scene too. That was that was that was Richard. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I I really like that that with Colum, uh he he got to be on one of the first responders when um, Murphy goes to relieve the planet that had been uh, uh, K-striked by by the League, and his dad perfectly put 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 him out here like, no no, you need to go out there and start looking for survivors, knowing exactly what what Colum was going to see and then how Colum was going to grow up. From, from this experience one way or another. Yeah. And so when, when Callum, you know, got face to face with the war the way it really is, it was a bit of a, a surprise for him. Well, another nice touch that Richard worked into that entire scene is Callum for reasons, well, that entire sequence, not just that scene, for reasons that make perfectly good sense. Okay, when Callum finds the body heap where the survivors have been piling the, they're dead in the early bodies in the in the queue. It's a it's a it's a winter planet, so the early bodies in the queue are they've been properly wrapped and laid out, and so but by the time you get to the end, they're just heaving the bodies in the general direction of the heat. That's how many there are. 
and and Callum loses it and he throws up and everything. Very understandably at that point, he forgets about a sensor glitch that he had looked at that he'd planned to check out. And he goes back and his father says, who's come down to the planet, asks him, you know, what about that, that sensor glitch? Because he was looking at Callum's records. And Callum's like, it's one in my area, you know, kind of thing. And his father just looks at him. And then his father leads the group out there. And Callum is like, a part of him is like, well, it, it wasn't my job, you know, kind of thing. And another part of him is like feeling the shame of, of not having done this. And that honestly is also a huge part of how Callum's and, and Murphy's relationship with Ira uh, begins and is shaped. But the thing about Callum is he couldn't have learned the lesson if the capacity to learn it hadn't already been there. Okay. Um, and that's one of the things I think that makes him so important to the reader. By the time we, we, we get to the end, you realize that there was always a lot more depth to this young man than he realized. Okay. Um, but I thought that that whole business with the down on the surface of the planet and for reasons that are totally 100% comprehensible to the reader, Callum forgot about it. He just, you know, turned around and headed back in. Um, I thought that was really, really well done um, in terms of the, of the, who these characters are. Um, it was well done in terms of how these characters come into contact with one another. But that whole additional layer of revealing who these characters are, um, I thought that was really, really well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, definitely a very memorable sequence in, uh, in the book. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about, obviously, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> we know where this ends because it's a prequel series. But uh, you guys have alluded to there's going to be more books coming uh, in the series. Are, are we working on them now? Or what, what is the plan for this, uh, this as we see the ascent to empire here? We, uh, we've got the, the outline for the second book pretty much all done. And then we also know what happens through the, like the second, like if the second book's outline is several dozen pages long at this point. At least, at least up in here, and then what we've sent back and forth, and then we know what happens in book three, when we know what happens in book four, and then I book five, we're like, I we know what happens, what that should be. So it's um, so you know, this the storylines light out, and and the problem is, is that David David has projects, I have projects, mm -hmm. and right now we're just trying to just, just clearing out the weeds of everything that has That's to get right. done first, and then then boom, we'll get to to book two, so. It's, yeah, I, th I think I have a book coming out from Bain starting in October, assuming that we get this one done and handed <laughs> in for like six, seven quarters in a row. Yeah, that's already in your name already keeps in popping up on the schedule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and and so sometimes I'm thinking to myself, I'm not getting anything done because I'm so far behind on all these projects. And then on the other hand, Marla is saying like, 
oh, I don't know, David, we have this, we have that. We have like, oh yeah, we do. <laughs> um, but Richard is right. There's a lot of schedule pressure here. And frankly, more of it is my fault than his fault. Um, that's partly because I have so many irons in the fire. It's partly because I don't multitask when I'm writing. I work on one project at a time. I can't pull off of one. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, part of it is health issues on my part. The COVID in January did not help. It cost yeah. me cost me a good two three months of of productive time. Uh, and part of it just is that I'm 69 this year, and so even under the best of circumstances, I don't have the the energy level that I had when I was 37. You know, just just starting out. Um, so all of that kind of comes together. And when a collaboration hits a pothole, like the, the one that I'm working on right now has done, you kind of have to drop everything else to fill in the potholes and get that one running. And then it has a concertina effect on everything else. Uh, Jacob Holowak has begun work on the fourth of the Gordian Protocol novels. Uh, Richard and I are at a point where, where his schedule allows it. He can start on the sequel to Governor. Um, Jane Linskold has, and I are at the, the story concept stage on the next uh, Star Kingdom novel. Yeah. Um, Chris Kennedy and I need to have a conversation for getting the sequel to uh, Into the Light underway. And Joel Presby and I have had conversations about the sequel to Road to Hell, uh, and she is already beginning work on her part of that. In the middle of all this, um, <laughs> I am two and a half years behind on the next safe hold novel for Tor, and my next solo project for Bane, Tony has told me in no uncertain terms, is the sequel to Sword of the South. Um, so it's not like... I don't have plenty of things to keep me busy, but you that's can, yeah. but but that's that's why working with me right now uh, is problematic in terms of how promptly. Oh, and, and Tim Zahn and Tom Pope and I still have one more book to do mm -hmm. in the Manticore Ascendant uh, series. Yay! Um, uh, <laughs> better to have too many things to do than have contracts and not be able to think of anything to do okay <laughs> but yeah. it it does and it, and it does create problems for the people who are who are working with me and i know it does and i'm sorry richard um but uh i am i am just flat out oh and i <laughs> sometime in the next year or so <laughs> Uh, I have to do a, I'm, I'm uh, committed to a collaboration with uh, Chuck Gannon in the uh, uh, Kane Riordan oh, cool. uh, yeah. universe. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, it's like I didn't cool. have anything else to do, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I think that's one reason why Tony uh, uh, is kind of like protective of, of my time when people said, oh, it, Assuming that we can get Clarence, um, uh, Phil Tornell and I um, are supposed to be doing uh, follow-ons to Mamelukes. Um, and again, you know, in my in my copious free time, I'll just yeah. jump jump right on. <laughs> I have I have an Honor Harrington anthology 
that has been sitting here on my computer for five years, just waiting for me to get my story for it written. Yeah. You and just like was, all the fans are just like, wait, what? Yeah. Well, that <laughs> we're going to get as, letters about that now. <laughs> well, no, no, but that's okay because as soon as I get this novel done, okay, before I do anything else, I'm going to write my short story right. anthology and and hand it in. Uh, which will be a considerable surprise to my co-authors who will suddenly start getting delivery checks uh, <laughs> on this. I mean, what is this for? You know, um, but it's, it, and it just got pushed to the back yeah. burner and then just plain forgotten, you know? Now, I, okay, um, The Apocalypse Troll, mm -hmm. okay, which came out, what, 10 years ago now? That was actually the first solo novel that Jim Bain ever bought from me before any of the others. Yeah. Um, and it sat there. Um, and the uh, I actually rewrote it like at least twice, I think maybe three times, uh, because little things happened like, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the mm -hmm. <laughs> dissolution <laughs> of the Soviet Union, yeah, yeah, kind of thing. So finally, I get this call from Marla one day, and she says, David. And I said, yeah. She said, you're going to think this is really funny. And I said, what? She says, we have a contract from like 1990 that you never filled. <laughs> and I said, really? And he, she said, yeah, it's for something called the Apocalypse Troll. I said, Marla, that contract was written for a book that had already been delivered. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, it's been rewritten several times since. And she said, why? And I said, because of the Berlin Wall. And she says, oh. And she said, well, I guess you'd like the delivery check then. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that would be nice. How much is it? She said, $5,000. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, send that puppy on down. You know, yeah, kind of but when people talk about that book and they say it reads like early Weber. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a reason. That's yeah. the earliest <laughs> Weber there is, guys. <laughs> so it's it's um, you, the, the hard part about when you have two authors, you have lots of stuff on their plates. It's just mm -hmm when do these things add up and yeah and it, me for by and large the only thing the only hard and fast thing i have is to deliver another manuscript to podium publishing because rc bray is going to narrate it so i just like this one book has to be to him yeah. on october 15th because it's, it's rc bray and his schedule fills up quick and god help you if you fall off but yeah. i think um the, i can have the the manuscript for book two to david early 2022 all right Ooh. so it's um but it, but also if, if bane comes along and says june 5th we're like oh okay fine, fine. you know <laughs> well I, I will react and, and have it in yeah so but it's um i'm, I'm finishing up uh my third ember war series called the abar crusade and then i'm do i've got the tear series which is being narrated by rc bray that starts the, the first book comes out august uh august 3rd and then so once i get the, the Barker say done and then the next two tier books done because I would much rather have book three waiting waiting for sure. RC Bray to have an opening in the schedules and get out faster but then after the after those two series are done then I I think I can get into uh, book two and then you just leave it for David because I'd much rather have David you know have have the manuscript waiting for him rather than David to say, hey, I've got an opening. Where is it? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have well, to, give, me a, give me a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, have, I have to say, I kind of, okay. When I started writing, okay, um, it was basically typewriter, okay, and hard copy. And you edited with a pen and then retyped, okay. 
Um, and that was the first book, probably. Uh, that That's how I wrote The Apocalypse Trove, which was actually written before um, Insurrection. Okay, Insurrection, I wrote on a Radio Shack uh, 80, I think, uh, using Scripsit, which was an early word processing program and one of the better ones around in a lot of ways. And my collaborator, Steve White, wrote his chapters longhand and sent them to me for me to incorporate. It wasn't until Honor Among Enemies that I was able to submit a manuscript electronically. Before then, I could send it hard copy and send it with a floppy, but it wasn't until that point that I could send one electronically. The writing tools and the writing environment have changed so much in that 30 year span. For traditional publishing, it's been more a matter of the technology that is now used to produce the same basic product that was already being produced, plus the eBooks and the audiobooks. For folks like Richard, who started as, as, as indies and, and whatnot, okay, electronic publishing was, is a totally different thing yeah. from traditional publishing. Um, before computers came along, somebody like me who produced three roughly 200,000 word novels a year was really, really, really rare. Okay, you, some of your pulp writers and whatnot who had to churn it out in short fiction and whatnot would produce maybe the same word count, but nobody was producing that many novels in a year. Um, and it was possible partly because I'm a fast worker, especially when I'm into the groove, but also because I was steadily getting capabilities that earlier writers hadn't had. I think in many ways that indies are under more pressure for output deadlines yeah. than traditional publishers. And I think that's partly because you're looking at a market where numbers of sales on an individual book are going to be lower than in traditional publishing that gets supported on Amazon and everywhere else. And so you're producing, you're, you're really in some ways more in the position of the old pulp writers. And some of those pulp writers were damn good. The fact that somebody calls them a pulp writer should not be seen as a you know dismissive throwaway any more than Dickens. Dickens was a pulp writer, for God's sake, for all yeah, the by the words. Yep. Um, and I just, every so often, I just sit back and I look and, and I marvel. Eric Flint and I were talking about this years ago the fact that what we're doing right now and email makes possible collaborations on a level that would never have been possible before. Right. You know, most, if you look at most of the really successful collaborative writing teams, um, they've lived in the same city. Uh, they've lived in the same neighborhood. A lot of them have lived in the same house because you had to be able to have that face-to-face -face confrontation. You had to have manuscript in front of you to talk about, you know, et cetera. Um, and with this, okay, I, Richard and I, you know, we're dropping stuff back and forth. We're both putting marginal notes on it. You know, if, if, we, if we're like, yeah, I wonder what he meant by that. It's boom, you know, we're gonna do a video conference on Facebook to, to talk it over or whatever. 
that's something that people just didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And I've told people before, you know, to me, e-publishing and the internet is to where we where we were. It's what Gutenberg was to the scriptorium in in a lot of ways. Okay. Those illuminated manuscripts are absolutely gorgeous and you know and everything, but you could produce two of them a year mm. as opposed to Gutenberg being able to print 500 copies of his Bible in a week. Okay. And I think that that's both very, very good and very, very bad. Um, I, uh, Richard, okay. I've said this before. Okay. <laughs> One of the great things about the internet is and, and, and electronic publishing is that you get to see bunches of books you never would have seen otherwise. One of the really bad things about it is you get to see bunches of books that you never would have seen otherwise. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I don't think we would have had any Chuck Tingle books. If we, <laughs> the traditionally published route. By the way, don't, don't Google that. You'll get some really weird uh, Google recommendations. If you do that. Well, I, you know, I, I, I have to say that the, I wish that more of the indie writers had the sort of support team that traditional writers had in terms of an editor telling them, no, this won't work, go fix it. Um, a really good editor like Jim or like Tony Weisskopf or Jim Mintz, you know, I'm, you know, I can think of several. They'll tell you that something wrong, something is wrong, and they'll tell you what they think is wrong, but they won't tell you how to fix it. Okay, they'll just tell you it needs to be fixed. And in fixing it, you have to understand, first of all, why they why they thought it was a problem, which is usually good for you to know going forward. But you also are brought face to face with what do I need to do to fix this? How do I need to grow as a writer to fix it? And in some respects, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with some of the collaborations that I'm doing um, is to, is to, I remember when John Ringo and I did March Up Country. Okay. I remember at one point he, he called me and he said, he said, David. And I said, yeah. He said, I got, I got like 200,000 words. And I said, that's great. He said, no, that's bad. I said, why? And he said, cause I'm halfway through the outline for the first book. <laughs> and I said, well, send it to me and I'll see what we can cut. And he sent it to me and I read it. And after I read it, I picked up the phone. I said, Jim. And he said, yeah. How would you feel about that trilogy turning into four volumes? <laughs> and he said, oh, hit me, beat me, make me write bad checks. Okay. So he did. But John told me, he said uh, he was reading the manuscript where I edited it and whatnot and changed it. And he said, you know, it was really scary. And I said, what? And he said, after you did it, I understood why you did every single thing you did. <laughs> you know? And Richard is, John at that point in his life had, I think, written one novel, the Him Before Battle novel. Uh, and that was really the first thing he'd written since college after his whole military career and everything. So I'm not comparing Richard and John's level of, of you know, experience uh, at that point. But the truth is that readers follow writers because of the writer's voices. Mm 
written the way the writers tell the stories. Okay, you can tell, it's like I, I've always said, you know, a strong tale that is told weakly will fail, whereas a weak story that is told strongly will succeed. Okay. And the hard thing for an editor or an experienced, more experienced writing partner in a collaboration to remember is that we're not trying to clone ourselves. Okay. Richard has a different storytelling voice from mine. Our collaborative storytelling voice is different from either of us in isolation. Okay. But the last thing that I need to be doing is saying, hey, Richard, you were 19 when you read my first book. I'm not letting you forget this. You understand that. Okay. But a young whippersnapper like you, you know, needs to do this the way I'm telling you to do it. Now, you know, that's, that's not the way this works. Okay. It would be a disservice to the collaboration we're working on it would be a disservice to me because I've learned stuff working with Richard that I didn't already know. Okay, there's some stuff that I picked up and I'm like, ooh, okay, I can, steal that. I can use that, I can borrow that, you know. Um, but by the same token, you know, that's part of what's going on here, but part of this what's going on here is sharing what I've learned and Richard taking what I'm sharing with him and putting it into his storytelling voice where it fits in his mosaic okay and this is not a zero-sum game i mean you know his succeeding is not going to cause me to fail okay i think that's something that some people miss sometimes yeah. one of the best writers and finest human beings i ever knew was roger zelazny okay and i will never ever forget we were at a, richard's already heard this i think we were at a convention in Virginia and Z and W, you know, right same, you know, ass end of the, of the alphabet, you know, all my life, anything is <laughs> alphabetized. I, I always looked around for somebody whose name began with a Y or a Z, you know, not too many began with an X, but anyway, um, the, um, so we're sitting at the, the table where we've been signing books. And I think I've signed every copy of my book in Virginia, all 17 of them. Uh, and Roger is at a hiatus in his signing, you know. And um, uh, Path of the Fury had just come out. And he looks at me and he says, finished Path of the Fury last night. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know. And he said, I think it may have been the best blend of fantasy and science fiction I've ever read. And I was like, whoa yeah okay and he was staying with the same people i was staying with in in virginia and that sunday evening we were sitting out on the back porch of this 150 year old house thunderstorm tin roof water pouring off the end drinking beer bare feet stuck out under the under the water coming off the edge and he was talking to me as if at that point in my career, I already had 25 novels in print or as if he only had five. That was the conversation that we were having. And I decided right then that if I got to grow up and be a writer, okay, 
that was the kind of memory that I would rather have people have of me. Because I've known too many people, not just writers, but in other professions who have been, listen, I paid cash for where I am. You Johnny come lately's, you know, just, you know, you know, kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't think there are very many human beings who go out of their, there are some, unfortunately, who go out of their way to squash people, okay? But there's a difference between not going out of your way to squash people and being supportive of people, okay? And I would a whole lot rather at the end of the day have been supportive of someone than just to be able to count coup that so-and-so who deserved it got squashed, okay? I have, I stepped on an author who shall remain nameless on a panel some years back because there was a young woman on the panel with us who had just had like her first novel come out. And this guy had a half a dozen, I guess. And this is going to sound strange coming from me, but he was dominating the panel. <laughs> okay. Um, and it was, you know, I was the only really, I guess, God, I hate this senior author on the, on the panel. And I actually was sort of stifling myself on this one because it was primarily a panel about, you know, how you get started and whatnot. But this guy, Every time somebody in the audience would ask the, the, the young lady about her book, he would jump in and say, well, you know, in my book, we did this, that, and the other, you know, kind of thing. And she obviously was feeling intimidated. I mean, it was her first novel, first con, the whole nine yards. And I finally leaned forward and looked down the table at him. I said, excuse me? And he said, yes. And he said, I believe they asked her that question. And they might want to hear her answer instead of another one from you. And he was like, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I didn't even think about it until after the panel. And somebody said, boy, you came down from Mount Olympus on him. And I'm like, what Mount Olympus? You know, uh, kind of, I mean, that was, it never even occurred to me, okay, that, that anybody would, would see it that way. But I was perfectly okay with people seeing it that way um, after the fact. Sharon's view of me among other sometimes uncomplimentary uh, <laughs> aspects um, is correct when she says that my problem is I don't handle silence well in a discussion situation. And if nobody else is talking, I damn well will. And the result is that nobody else gets to talk at all. <laughs> and, and Richard, um, here, I mean, see, see what I mean? <laughs> no, I, I just, for, for, for everyone out there, am I, is my Mac? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. For everyone out there, while we were uh, going through Governor, I had this idea one scene where there would be an animal sacrifice. And I, I floated that up to David, and David just kind of went, Maybe not, <laughs> and no, no, it, it, uh, he could have just said no. That's ridiculous. It doesn't fit the story. And then he, was, but he, he was 
gracious enough to say maybe we should rethink the animal sacrifice a little bit and i i did and it ended up being one of the better scenes in the whole book because i took out the animal sacrifice <laughs> and put in you know um uh, 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 uh what well, dang it um the one song who's i'm blanking the, on the, sabaton the covered it yeah uh, on, on flanders field excuse yeah. me so instead of an animal sacrifice scene we got on flanders field reference which was a lot stronger for the story so and really david was was correct with that and then um but a lot of times when we're going through here it's you know i'll have crazy ideas and then i i i, I float them up to david and david will, will stop and he'll be very considerate and mm-hmm. like, a lot of them will actually get through a lot of the crazy will get through and then david will say well what if we did this instead and what if we did that instead and what if we did you know if we we change this sort of action over here and then i then i you know am, am well aware enough that david has been writing much longer uh than yeah I have. since you and were 19 yeah <laughs> go ahead you know, get probably longer longer than that and then <laughs> ooh, so when, when, when david says well what if we did this that, and the other thing i i, I realize he's giving me very good constructive advice so i stopped to think that actually makes perfect sense. Why did I even go the other way? Animal sacrifice. <laughs> Put that oh, in no. there. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, no, but the animal sacrifice is in there. Okay. Yes, yes. Remember now, when now... Callum finds out? Okay. And and uh, and uh, Hanrahan Han says to him, you know, it's like, well, we'll have to sacrifice a goat when we get back to Silver Tree. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, Callum is like, what? And Murphy is like, yeah. Harry! <laughs> <laughs> and Harry is like, but his expression, it was yeah. priceless. In a different form, it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, gentlemen, I think we'll, we'll probably wrap it up. I usually have you guys plug what you've got coming out, but we kind of ticked all those boxes earlier, I think, uh, yeah, mostly. Yeah. Um, unless, Richard, did you get everything in? That- well, I, I would just, um, I, I, I've been reading a lot of the reviews for Governor, and I'm very happy that the folks, the readers really enjoyed the book. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that, that's that's the best thing I could hope for, is for readers to enjoy it. And I just wanted to let everyone out there know, yes, it's a series, and yes, we will finish the series. And the the, the wait may be a little, a little long between books, but you're going to get all of it. We're not taking, we're not talking Game of Thrones level <laughs> Uh, length here but it's uh, the whole series will come out and it will come out as timely as we can possibly make it yeah and i would i would add that uh richard for your core readership they're used to the schedule that you're producing them on in on the indie format yeah and the traditional format always yeah. runs runs longer than that uh the the minimum turnaround time for a traditional book is about 18 months mm-hmm. um from the time that you know you begin working on it to you know um yeah and that's another difference between the two the two markets that i think right. can be an interesting problem for somebody like you and jacob who are in in both and chris okay my, my god the four horsemen you know kind of thing mm-hmm. um whereas i'm basically just staying home in my own little little world you know kind of thing um but yeah definitely Okay, let's put it this way. Even if something were to happen to me, my whippersnapper co-writer here would finish the the books. (laughs) So they will get done. Uh, And no, that is not the reason I went out and got a much younger collaborator to help me out with it. I'm not planning on going anywhere. Um, But between the, the concussion from Dragon Con and then the COVID, it seems like, you know, I've i've had like for about four years now it's like you know something happens that knocks me off the the writing 
queue and I get back on and I do like two or three good books, everything is great. And then I go and do something else. Um, and I'm not too sure I'm in favor of people saying, well, David is fragile. Okay, <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, but there, you know, it's not fragility, it's timing. Um, and, uh, oh, and, and then of course, while working on this current project, kidney stones. Of course. Okay. You know, why not? You might as well throw something else into the mix. Uh, but Richard is correct. Uh, it will get finished. Um, and the next Bane book coming out for me, assuming that we, we get everything squared away in time, <laughs> uh, is to end in fire. Uh, the collaboration with Eric, which is the next in the Crown of Slaves. And it begins where Uncompromising Honor ended. Um, actually begins a couple of months before Uncompromising Honor ended. Um, and despite the, the problems that we've had with it, I think this book is solid. Uh, we do have the issue that because of delivery constraints, we've been delivering it to Bain in pieces rather than as a completed manuscript. And I really don't like doing that because it makes so much room for continuity errors and whatnot in the final edit. But we'll I think I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I told Tony, she said she thinks that she may have it uh, read by two separate copy editors, will have more queries, but be more likely to catch everything. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying here is that I think this is going to be a book that the readers are really going to like, and that will be worth everything that went into the into the sausage. Um, and I'm almost done. Yes, All right. I'm almost done. If we would stop calling you for podcasts, uh, you'd probably get knocked out. You know, <laughs> well, the, you know that, and you know, buying new cars yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. Um, anyway, that's about right. it from my end. So, well, thank you both so much. Uh, I'll say again, the book is Governor. It's the Ascent to Empire series. It is out now in hardcover and, of course, ebook. You can get on Bain.com, DRM free, or wherever you get your ebooks or uh, your paper books. So, uh, Richard Fox and David Weber, always a pleasure, David, to talk with you. And Richard, it was great to have you on the podcast for the first time. So, thank you so Perfect. much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. presenting a selection from the Brain Free Radio Hour archive. Journey back with us to an era when radio was king, a time when live actors and actresses gathered round the radio microphone and enacted dramas meant to be seen with the ears. Tune the dial on your crystal set to BFRH and journey back with me to the halcyon days of 2014. That's right, listeners. We're offering up an encore broadcast of an original audio dramatization of Eric Flint's Islands, a story set in his Belisarius universe. This is not an audiobook, folks, but a complete cast recording with music and sound effects. Though it harkens back to the days of old time radio, this is a thoroughly modern production adapted by your host, Tony Daniel. Bain produced two of the, uh, these audio dramas, the other being Larry Correa's Christmas in Detroit, and both are available for purchase at BainEbooks.com. These adaptations have always been favorites of mine, so I asked Tony if we could replay one of them here on the podcast. So without further ado, here is Eric Flint's Islands, part one.
Bane Audio Drama from Bane Books, the heart of science fiction and fantasy. Bane Audio Drama presents Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake. Incoming! Get down! Get down! Get behind the wall! You heard the captain! Behind the ramparts, you lazy dogs! Don't have to tell me twice, Sarge. Flowers are having us for lunch! The young captain will see us through. Run! Run, you dogs! Run for your lives! You get down too, sir! I will look! Sir, are you alright? Captain Serenites! Sir! Sir, are you hit? That was close, sir. If you hadn't have given the order, that mortar would have cut us all to pieces. Sir? Sir, let me turn you over. Uh, is it... what happened? Oh, Am I... Mary, mother of God. Is it... it can't be night already, can it? Saints, protect us. What is it, Luke? What are you talking about? Oh, sir. Speak, man. Your eyes, sir. Your face. It's bad. What are you talking about? Strike a light. Strike a light, I tell you. Strike a light. Strike a light. My name is Luke of Elephonesis. I am aide-de-camp to Captain Calipodius Serenites of the Roman legions now fighting in India. Yes, that Calipodius. Calipodius the Blind. It is almost impossible to believe what a year can do. It can make a boy into a man, a, a girl into a woman. For you see, before Calipodius became a great and revered captain who led his men bravely in battle, and then Calipodius the Blind, whom you undoubtedly know, he was simply a 17-year-old boy about to enter into an arranged marriage, an arranged marriage that the young woman involved most decidedly did not want to take place. It's not fair. I know, child, but life so seldom is. Why can't they understand? I don't want him. You hardly know him, child. All right, I'll say it. I don't want it. The moment I become his wife, my life ends. Heaven forfend! Don't speak in such a way, Anna. I want to be left alone. I want to find my own path. I am 17 years old. I've hardly lived. True enough. And I want books. Books and stories and science and philosophy for the rest of my life. I do not wish to become an ornament. Nobody expects you to like it, dear. Then why? Why must I be sold into a life of utter misery, utter boredom? Look around, Anna Melissini. What do you see? Books I haven't read. Books I will never read now. Oh, Sister Catherine, a life I will never lead. Listen to me, child. All of this, all of these books, the tapestries, your precious library, this convent and the school grounds along with it, all of this must be paid for. All of this costs money, a great deal of money. Money is a vulgar topic, Sister Catherine. I don't care a whit for it. 
spoken like a sheltered little rich layabout. Do not speak to your betters that way, nun. I'm sorry, Sister Catherine. Besides, I'm not that little. Think, child. Where does money come from? Where does true wealth reside? In the heart? In the alliance of families, Anna. The Melusini with the Serenites. You have an ancient lineage. The Serenites are one generation removed from the street. They have grown very rich, adapting the new machines and methods brought by the Aid Crystal. You, Melusini, are now as poor as church mice. Don't you think I know that, Sister Catherine? No, you would be quite rich for church mice. Or commoners. But poor. Among the aristocracy of Constantinople, yes. You know we are facing bankruptcy. And thus so is this convent. Your family supports the cloister. They have bought the books in this library. I am not a fool, Sister Catherine. I understand this. Then you know that with the wealth this alliance with the Serenites will bring to the Melusini family, you can build a dozen such libraries. And hardly set foot in one of them. It isn't as bad as all that, child. I should at least marry for love. Then there is a man you desire to be with? No, certainly not. Perhaps you can learn to desire, if not to love. And I have heard that Master Calipodius is handsome enough. <gasps> Sister Catherine! No one does hear rumors, even locked up in here. Oh, you surprise me. Well, I may be a nun, but I'm also a woman. I wish I could stay locked up here with these books forever. The steam engine. The telegraph. The times are changing as they haven't for a thousand years. Not fast enough for me, Sister Catherine. Not fast enough. Dear Anna, I died that day, or thought I had. I was finally achieving the glory I left home to find. The Malwa made a great charge at the ramparts, but we repelled him. My men held firm. Oh, we rained a terrible fire upon those troops. Bullets, bombs, exploding shells. I was everywhere along the wall, giving orders like a professional. We won, Anna. But one mortar, one parting shot from their rear guard. Feeble, pointless. Our enemy was defeated. They were in retreat. The parting shot. And it took half my face. Anna. I'm blind. All right, I've got it all, sir. Want me to read it back to you? No, no. It's too long for the telegraph. Put it on the mail packet home to Constantinople. Very good, sir. The Iron Triangle usually has reliable courier service to Constantinople, even though I hear the Malwa do their best to blow every ship that passes out of the water. Oh, well. We'll have to trust to the... The general, sir. Captain Serenites, welcome to the Iron Triangle. I know I shouldn't have come, General. But I felt so useless downriver. Maybe I can help with supplies. Or, or something. Calipodius, it is good to have you here. I may not be able to see, but I can still count, even if... Forget that. I've got enough supply clerks. Then there is nothing for me. Not at all. The truth is, lad, I'm delighted to see you. We're relying on telegraph here on the island for communication with the rest of the army. 
But the telegraph's a new thing for everyone. I know code. I could be a telegraph clerk. I could do it, sir. <laughs> Had in mind something a little more complicated. This command bunker is full of people shouting at cross-purposes. I need a good officer who can take charge and organize this damn mess. You would have a blind man do this? Being blind won't be a handicap at all for this work. Probably be a blessing. General, I never expected to command again. I don't know what to say. Say yes, Captain Serenites. My tutors thought highly of my grammar and rhetoric. If nothing else, I'm sure I can improve the quality of the messages. <laughs> Calipodius, your reports are always clear, concise, and perfectly detailed. You do write them yourself, don't you? Of course, sir. I would never trust that task to anyone else. Then it's settled. It's real. I never thought... something real. I can do this. And it was something my captain was good at. Within days, he understood the problem. Within a week, he had General Belisarius's communication center humming like a well-organized beehive. Yes, Calipodius found his place on the island known as the Iron Triangle. Being blind, he had come to realize, did not mean the end of life although it did transform his dreams of fame and glory into much softer and more muted colors. Life is a crude thing, after all. It is a project begun in confusion, fumbling with unfamiliar tools, the end never really certain until it arrives. It is not unlike a blind man attending to his toilet. And to think a year before, another had believed her life at an end, as surely as had blind Calipodius. Who? Anna, Calipodius's new wife, of course. Take her to port! Take her to port, helmsman! Aye, my lord. Port! <sighs> That's more like it. A good ship to sail, the wind before us... We couldn't ask for better weather for a honeymoon voyage. Yes, it's lovely here. And this will be my one taste of the sea. No voyages for me. Should we put into Elephonesis and get a bite to eat? There's a tavern there that serves the best goat shish kebab you've ever tasted. And their wine is superb. Do what you want, Lord Serenites. Please. Call me by my Christian name, Anna. You're my wife now. Very well. Do what you want, Calipodius. Anna, what is wrong? You've been so cold. Are you worried that I don't find you attractive? Believe me, under all the clothes and makeup and veils you must wear lies a very beautiful woman. I found that out last night. I hope I did my duty. That and more, Anna. Did I not please you? You're an attractive boy. Sex was as I expected. That doesn't sound good. No, it was fine. You were fine. But now you're cold enough to frost my breath by talking to you. You don't understand. You will never understand. Anna, what have I done? You have crushed me like an insect. You don't even know you've done it. You're a man. How could you know? I... You're right. I don't understand. We'll do my duty for my family. Your duty? I see. There will never be affection, no friendship? I look at you and it enrages me, Calipodius. I suppose you know I could take a courtesan. 
Most men in my position would. But that's not for me. I have news. I was going to wait to share it with you until after we had gotten to know one another a bit. Well, no matter. This will no doubt please you in any case. I am going to war. I have applied for a commission in General Belisarius's army. I have been accepted onto his staff. I'll leave for India in a week. <laughs> you? You're going away to be a Roman legionnaire? How perfect. Not only will you shut me up in your house, you won't be here to escort me out. I am completely trapped. At least you won't have to look at me and be enraged. Not after this week. You understand nothing. I guess I do not. Helmsman, pick us into Elephonesis. I need a drink. Captain Serenides, Persian command at Daru Landing report Malwa incursion from the north-northeast. Looks to be regiment size, sir. Very well. Write it up, triplicate. One copy to General Belisarius, one for command staff, one for the files. First, CQ them for immediate reply. Yes, sir. They say there was hard fighting, but it's contained. Situation nominal. Make a note of that and include it with the file. Yes, sir. General Belisarius. You know me by the sound of my footsteps, Calipodius. Impressive. General, with my eyes gone, my other senses have improved tenfold. And my memory as well. It had to so that I could get around. What's that I heard about Kuagar landing? Regiment size, infantry attack, situation nominal. Hmm, maybe. Or maybe it's a feint by Link. That alien intelligence rarely makes a move without a reason. He cares nothing for the lives of his troops, but he won't have spent them to no purpose. Let's keep our ears to the ground up and down the line, Captain. Yes, sir. General. I have been thinking. A man does what he can. I am blind, but I am also educated and rich. These soldiers around us, they have helped me on my way far more than I have helped them. They have their own dreams and their own glory. I can't share that glory directly anymore, but if I could save it for the world... Out with it, lad. I do have a few pressing concerns at the moment. A record, sir. A history. A history of your campaign. Of the war. Of the coming of the Asante Shard aid, with all of its information about the future it shared with you, of the coming of its malevolent counterpart, Link, a complete account. <laughs> That's a fine idea, Calipodius. Absolutely. I'm a fool not to have thought of it before. And you're the perfect writer. Thank you, sir. I shall, of course, work on the project on my own time. All of your time is mine so long as you're in the Roman legions, lad. And not only that, I have another task for you. Yes, sir? Dispatches to the Senate in Constantinople, mentioning deeds and naming names. As you say, the glory and sacrifice of these men should be noted. I'll have our young emperor read them aloud in the Senate forum, and then we'll publish them with our new printing presses. The families will want to hear, even if the news is sorrowful. I suppose I could. Yes, but I would write these dispatches differently than my history. No flourishes or literary allusions, just the plain facts so the most uneducated can understand them. <laughs> I have it on good authority that a plain, unornamented style will be much more appreciated in the future than one of flourishes and high rhetoric. Good authority? As in that crystal you wear around your neck, with the infinitely intelligent mind inside? <laughs> I'm afraid that Aid says that your dispatches will be read long after your history is forgotten. They'll put you up there with Livy and Procopius. So get to it, lad. Yes, General. Immediately, sir. 
Is this the bunker of Calipodius the Blind? Who wants to know? We're from the 13th. We're Antioch men. The general sent us. Bring them in, Luke. Bring them in. All right, you heard the man. Who do we have here? A bunch of boys seeking fame and glory, lad. Speak up then, boys. Tell me everything. Name's Abelard. Abelard of Antioch. I'm the Hecatontarch in charge of the westernmost bastion of the fortress of... You had hot fighting yesterday. I heard about it. Came at us like demons, sir, but we bloodied them good. I'll want to hear all the details. Luke here is my aide-de-camp, but he's also a scribe. Sit at the table. Over there, gentlemen, and we'll get started. I'll make sure it goes into the next dispatch. Thank you, sir, but begging Luke here's pardon, it's neither the fame nor the glory of it, it's just... Your dispatches get read to the Senate, sir, each and every one, by the Emperor himself, and then the Emperor, by express command, has them printed and posted all over the Empire. The printing press is a wonderful new thing. You see, we want it for our families, sir. They'll see our names and know we're all right, except for those who died in the fighting, but at least... Their names will exist somewhere, on something other than a tombstone. You have the truth of it there, sir. Let's get started. Get that baggage unloaded, you dogs, or I'll take the skin off your backs and leave you to rot in this godforsaken spot. You push us much harder, Captain, and you'll be the one rotten. You and your cargo, too, if you want to call it Shut that. your foul trap. I figured this was a bad idea. A woman on a boat heading into a war zone. Don't matter how much silver she throws around, it ain't worth dying for. Now get moving, dogs. Captain, why are you unloading my baggage? We are not in Charax yet. Aye, lady, we're not. But this is as far as we're going. What do you mean? Do you plan to abandon me at this pier? There's not even a town nearby. I am, unless you have the silver to pay for a trip back down the river with me. I have no intention of going back with you, you terrible man. Watch it, lady. There's those in these parts what won't take such insults as I do. But I hired you and your men to protect me. I paid you good money. You swore to Mother Mary. No amount of Roman silver is worth dying for, lady. Besides, I ain't exactly a Christian. You certainly are not. Leave my things and get out of here. I'll find another way to my husband. My very wealthy husband. I'll do that. Come on, boys. Drop that pile of woman's garbage and let's get underway. Word to the wise, lady... Them rivermen over there under that neem tree look mighty friendly, if you know what I mean. And them three soldiers over by yonder well probably wouldn't mind being your friends, neither. You son of a bitch! (laughs) Good riddance, your ladyship. Haul away, boys. Let's get while the getting's good. Send us a note when you get there, your ladyship so as we can know you arrive all safe and sound. Maybe you can get that blind writer fellow to put you in one of his dispatches, else we'll be worried stiff. <laughs> Go to hell. Oh, Mother Mary, what have I gotten myself into? What do we have here? Looks like a real Constantinople lady. How do they even breathe in what you are wearing? Looks like a walking tent to me. I would not mind crawling under that tent to see what is inside. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. No, no, princess. That's not going to happen. Always wanted to find out if it's true what they say. Come here. Let me go. Let me go, damn you. Yes, they say you Roman bitches shave your legs so fine and smooth. We'll soon find out when I take that... 
sons of the fathers. Look at this, look at this, will you? What? What do you have there? Silver. Roman silver, enough to choke on. Put that down. Those are my only funds. I need them to keep going. I need them to find him. Oh, we'll have your silver. Please. And we'll have you over and over again. Oh, Mary. Angels! Shut up with that blasphemous cunt. <sighs> See this knife, Roman whore? You stay planted right here if you know what's good for you, or I'll cut your eyes out. No. No. I'll be back for you. Get your hands off those coins if you value your fingers. We'll split it eight ways among us all right and proper. Damn right. You said it. Oh, God. Oh, God. What am I going to do? Oh, the soldiers. Maybe I can pay them to... Oh, God, I have to try. Please, you have to help me. We have to do no such thing. I'm begging you. Beg all you want, girl. There's eight of them and three of us. Look, I need help. <laughs> I'd say you do. You'll be lucky if they don't kill you after they rob and rape you. You speak Greek very well. Then you'll understand this. Stupid, noble woman. Brains like a chicken. Are you some kind of idiot traveling alone down this part of Mesopotamia? The difference between a riverman here and a pirate... I'll pay you. She'll pay us! She says she'll pay us, brother. We can use their boat to take us out of Mesopotamia, beats walking, and the chance of another caravan. But what say you, Abdul? Yes, but nothing fancy. It's too hot. All right. Here's the way it is. You give us half your money and whatever other valuables you've got. Like this necklace here. Hands off. <laughs> I do admire you, girl. And I don't mean the way those rivermen like you. You've got spirit. I'll give you that. Like I said, half of everything. And we see you on your way home. I can't. I need the money Idiot, to... you've got no business here, girl. Just be thankful you'll get out of this little adventure with your life. Not to mention keeping your precious hymen intact. That ought to be worth a lot once you get back to your family. My husband took care of that bastard before he went off to war and left me. God save us. An abandoned little wife, no less. Best come away from there, Roman slut. We have business with you. There's eight of us and three of them. Hey, we don't want any trouble. I'm sure we can work something out. Yeah, we can. We'll be there as soon as we get this properly split. And then you'd better hand her over. Think you're the first woman got abandoned by a husband looking to make his fortune in war? He already has a fortune. He went looking for fame. And he found it too, damn him. And what is the name of this paragon of martial virtue? Anthony, the illustrious courier? He is famous. At least in Constantinople, after Belisarius' letter was read to the Senate. And his own dispatches, too. Belisarius? What does the general got to do with your husband? What's this husband's name? Calipodius. Calipodius Serenites. Are you trying to tell us, you are the wife of Calipodius the Blind? Yes, they tell me he is blind now. He was blind to me before. If you are lying... Why would I lie? As you say, why would you lie? And how do you us? expect me to prove it anyway? Can you read? I have his letters to me. Do you know him yourself? No less, we don't. We thought we were rich after Charax. We left the general service there. We... Uh, 
My name is Ilus. This is my kid brother, Katomenes. We had enough money to buy us a big farm back home, and Abdul here decided to go in with I'm sick of the desert. Never did like Kamut. All right. Time to hand over the room in slot. Come to think of it, I'm sick of thieves and rapists, too. I'd tell you to stay back, girl, but I think you've at least got enough sense to do that. Come on, then, boys. For Belisarius. For Belisarius. For the general. What do you think you're doing, Isario? Stay back if you value your life. This is ours. And she's ours, too. You take the two on the left, brother. Abdul, you take the right. Not fair. That leaves you with four. Where did you ever get the notion that life is fair? Let's do this! I'll have done with you when I finish cutting you, you will. Your turn. Please don't! Please don't! Too late! Watch out, Illus! Well, Brother Illus, that was easier than I thought it would be. And who said you could have three, Abdul? <laughs> Where did you ever get the notion that life is fair? <laughs> you killed them. So fast. You killed them all. Get used to it, girl. You'll see plenty more of that where you're going. Especially if you make it to the island. The island? What island? You don't even know about that? The Iron Triangle, they call it. Where your husband is, along with the general. Right in the mouth of the Malwa Horde. I didn't know it was an island. I only knew it was somewhere in India. <laughs> God save us. Somewhere in India. <laughs> India is kind of a big place, your ladyship. It's where the general is making his stand, facing a hundred thousand Molwa. Ah, let's hope you learn something by the time we get to Charex. You're going to take me? You're going to take me? Well, to tell the truth, we've been having second thoughts about mustering out. It seems a shame to miss out on looting Malwa itself. Yes, we'll take you, girl. Hell yes. I assume you'll recommend us to the general. I'd really prefer a better sign at this time than being on the front lines. A bit dicey, that, when the general's running the show. He does insist on fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine my husband needs a bodyguard. And he's certainly rich enough to pay for it. Done, wife of Calipodius the Blind. Done and done. That was the first installment of the audio dramatization of Eric Flint's Islands. Tune in next week for part two. Well, that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Richard Fox for sitting down and talking with me. And a hail and hearty thank you to Tony Daniel for letting me sit in this week. You know, 
Over the years, Tony has been a great mentor and friend. It's almost like we're siblings. I was touched to see he felt the same way. The other day, I uploaded the podcast and he sent me a text saying, Big Brother is watching. Heartwarming. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Tune in here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.